This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Get $50 off select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash fool and use promo code fool at checkout. And thanks to Harry's for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. Harry's is so confident you're going to love their blades, they'll give you their trial shave set for free when you sign up at harrys.com slash fool. You just pay for shipping. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. What a delight it is for me to have a special guest this week, a friend of The Motley Fool, largely just because I and my brother Tom read Les McEwen's book. His first book that we read was Predictable Success some years ago. And so, as is natural for us here at The Motley Fool, we're like, well, let's invite him in. Let's get to meet this person who's written this book. And as it turns out, not only is Les McEwen a brilliant thinker about business and a wonderful author, but he brings a North Irish accent and some charm. And so, we're going to ask Les this week if you could amp up the accent a little bit. I'm sure you've Americanized somewhat <laughs> in your few decades here. But anyway, what a delight it is to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, David, as it always is to come to Motley Fool. I love you so much here that I got up out of my sickbed. So, my wonderful <laughs> Irish accent is masked a little bit with some, you know, phlegm and hacking, but I'm sure we'll get through it just fine. So, Les, I want to start. Um, I did, by the way, already recommend this reading last week, so no doubt some Rule Breaker listeners have already read Predictable Success, but we'll conduct this interview as if somebody is hearing all this for the first time. And when I first read your introduction, and I'm not looking at the book right now, this is from my own recall about 10 years ago, I remember just thinking about your phrase, predictable success. I'd like to start there, Les, because what you say in the introduction, as I remember it, is success is actually a lot easier than most people think. In fact, it's somewhat predictable. And so, don't think of success as this elusive thing that's very hard for us. Maybe one day we can finally struggle to achieve it, but rather it can be predictable. And that came from your background, Les, and that's where I want you to start. Uh, Assessing, participating, looking at dozens, maybe hundreds of startups over the course of time, developing pattern recognition about what worked and what didn't. Where was Les McEwen born? How did it all start? Well, I was born in Belfast, which is the messy bit of Ireland. Uh, Belfast is the part of Ireland that you come from, which I did 20 <laughs> years ago to the US. Uh, you go to Dublin, if you've got any sense. Um, so, uh, Belfast is the, the in the north. It's an industrial city. We have this harsh accent. We don't have the lilting Gaelic accent. So, I grew up uh, two uh, working class uh, blue-collar workers, mom and dad both, uh, just did whatever jobs they could get their hands on. Um, nobody in my family had ever gone to college. Uh, we just hard scrabble, living in projects, essentially, they would be called over here. Um, but two good people uh, who paid their dues. And one of the things that that upbringing did for me was, I now understand looking back on it, was really build a desire for some degree of autonomy and freedom in my own decision-making. I saw that they were really... Um, caught to just every day eke out a living for us. And I wanted to um, try to break out of that in some way. And for whatever reason, for me, uh, as a weird kid, I was fascinated by business. And when my dad had got um, an office job, he had all sorts of jobs, just a taxi driver and everything else. But in the times when he had office jobs, I would ask to go into the office with him at the weekends when he would go in. And things like paper clips and, you know, telex machines as there were back then. It's the whole paraphernalia of business, for whatever reason, fascinated me. Mm. 
And so I uh, began to look at, in my teens, um, just the businesses around me, which were essentially stores and shops, retail things. And uh, I began to wonder, why does this store never do well, ever, even though it's been through like 32 different versions of whatever it's been? It's always failed. And this store, you know, just two blocks away, is a raging success, has been there forever. Never worked out the answer, but it got me interested Mm. in the concept of underlying patterns. I got a piece of advice, great piece of advice from my very first mentor. He said, look, if you're interested in business, either go be an attorney or go be an accountant. Uh, either way, you'll get a good understanding of some fundamentals. And if it all goes belly up, you can put your shingle out and you know charge people money for your services. Um, and I'm I, pretty sure you're not an attorney, Les. I, I am not an attorney. Were you I, an accountant? I became a CPA, or the British equivalent, a chartered, mm-hmm. a, a chartered accountant. Very mm-hmm. nice, posh phrase. Uh, but like I say, I only did that because I wanted to learn about business. And the minute I qualified, and I did it by night school. I never went to college. Uh, I was the last um, year of being able to do a five-year night school and become the equivalent of a CPA. And I chose that. Uh, and I remember I got articled, which means I paid the partner I worked for £100 a year for the privilege of working for him for the first two years before I got a salary. Mm. Anyway, I did five years, qualified did, qualified quite well, set up my own practice immediately, even though that, in retrospect, was a ridiculously bold thing to do, with the sole aim of trying to help people build their businesses, because that's what fascinated me. Long story short, um, people began to come to me to ask them to help write business plans, you know, take them to the bank, negotiate loans, uh, find premises, just all of the bits and pieces involved in startups. And I loved it. And uh, folks would start to ask me, are you interested in joining me? Would you like to, you know, be an interim CEO or be part of the launch team? And essentially over a 10-year period, I got to cherry pick uh, new startups. And I was part of the startup team in 42 businesses uh, before I was 35. Mm. Now, even a dumb Irishman begins to see repetitive patterns when you do things that often. Mm-hmm. And I started to, being inherently lazy, uh, I started to scribble these repeating patterns into what were then called lab books. These were thin, blue, uh, full-scab books that people kept lab notes in mm. uh, way before laptop days. And uh, I still have the stack of lab books where I was just doodling and doodling and doodling these patterns that I saw over and over again. And by the time I was in my uh, early 30s, I pretty much felt that I'd got the underlying repetitive, predictable pattern of what we would now call a successful startup. Um, But I got the end of a piece of thread that fascinated me. And what I believed was this model, um, the repeating patterns that I saw, almost certainly went beyond just the startup phase. So I started to work with growing businesses, helping them get to second stage growth, third stage growth. And yes, the patterns that I began to be able to try to predict were proving themselves out. So I sculpted at this, sculpted at this. I I wasn't making anything up. I was just uncovering the real patterns that were there, giving names, words, titles to this stuff. And the final bit came into place I'm terrible with dates, but it was towards the end of the... Uh, but 1998, 1999. I'm, I'm 162 years of age, by the way. <laughs> you look younger than that. I, I just, you look very well, vital. Les. Only just. Um, <laughs> I, by that stage, had been um, going backwards and forwards to the U.S. Uh, quite a lot. And I moved out here uh, permanently. I went to the West Coast because I had the opportunity to work with very large companies. Microsoft, T-Mobile, uh, U.S. Army, American Express, Harvard University. And what I wanted to do was to prove out what I believed 
the rest of this model looked like. What did, what did uh, to be honest, what did the decline stage look at? Look like I had uh, worked with organizations in the growth stage. I had that bit sorted out. I wanted to look at very large organizations and see if I could get predictive about what would cause them to begin to decline. And lo and behold, turns out this is a holistic pattern. Like I say, I didn't make any of it up. I just uncovered it. And it's essentially an arc of growth and decline, seven stages that every organization goes through. It doesn't just apply to businesses. As I discovered over time, it applies to any group of two or more people who are pursuing common goals. So it applies to not-for-profits, for-profits. It applies to government agencies. It applies to your kids' soccer league. Uh, any group of two or more people trying to achieve common goals go through these seven stages. And that's what predictable success is. And that's what is going to be the next stage of this interview, because Les, I've always loved your framework. It is seven stages. And the visual is that of a kind of a, an arch, if you will. So starting in the lower left for... Those of us who are jogging right now, or driving, <laughs> as we listen to Rule Breaker Investing, our favorite podcast ever, of course. you want to be picturing from the bottom left, uh, and then up to a keystone in the arch, and then you're going to keep going down the other side, and that's going to be the decline portion of it. Right. So, we're going to start. There are seven stages. I want you to talk us maybe two minutes through sure. each one or so. So, in the very bottom left, what is the first stage of uh, of an enterprise, well, it's probably the most intuitive one. Uh, we call it early struggle. It's essentially what you what would be called the startup phase these days. But I call it early struggle because uh, one of the key reasons I do that is that we, one of the disservices that many of us who are commentators in the business scene have done over the last number of years is to glorify the startup mentality as if it's something that's you know wonderful and to be maintained at all times. I think that's a sin before God to do that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's only one uh, valid strategy for a startup, and that's to stop being one. Uh, because if you don't, eventually you'll die. You either stop being a startup and become, you know, a valid business, or your ultimately money's going to run out and you'll die. So I call it early struggle to emphasize the need to get out of it. And early struggle is essentially just that: it's the struggle to find a profitable, sustainable market. Simple as that. You got to find a profitable, sustainable market. Something that will pay you, Something anybody you've hired. And have maybe Correct. something left over. Uh, well, it has to have something left over, and there, you know, there are so many uh, pitfalls that will get in your way in early struggle. It's probably the most existential stage in the development of any organization. It's pretty binary. The the, the drop off rate, the mortality rates, about eighty percent of all new ventures fail in the first three years, as you're aware. And the, there are two key reasons for that. One is uh, the absence of uh, what we call a visionary. Uh, which we'll talk about a little later, uh, someone who really owns the vision for the business. But the second reason is the one that is uh, most frequent, which is just the lack of a ruthless focus on a profitable, sustainable market. Particularly if you know, you're know you in tech and you get overfunded, you can go out and you know, buy a bunch of conference chairs and uh, you know, get a beautiful new logo and think things are going really well, but you're not one inch closer to a profitable, sustainable market. So early struggle is all about finding that profitable, sustainable market. That's the only thing that matters. You find that, you don't find it, like I say, 80% of businesses will fail. You find it, you emerge, and it is a sense of emergence. It's Coming out of early struggle rarely feels like an event. It's more something you recognize in the rearview mirror has happened. You're into the second of the growth stages, so we're midway up the left side of the arch. And that's a stage which I give the most technical term to. We call that fun. 
And before we get to that, I want to ask you briefly. I I hear you on the glorification of startups and that mentality. Um, I'm wondering if you watch the show Silicon Valley. If you've seen that I on do. HBO, I adore that show. <laughs> I really do. Because in a way, it actually contributes to the glorification in it some does. ways. But it's lampooning it and having a great bit and of having fun. good fun with yeah, it. But yeah. you know that constant need to pivot and pivot and pivot and pivot <laughs> is all about you know not actually wanting to get out of early struggle. And in fact, we could get into this stage and never get out of it. There are people <laughs> who are viscerally, they need viscerally to be in early struggle. It's the place they need to be. And they'll actually self-harm their business in order to stay there. And you don't want to be associated mm, with those people. I hear you. So, we are stepping up the arch. So, we've just laid a block. We've laid a foundation stone. It's called early struggle. We're going to stack a block on top of it as we construct an arch together. And the second block you've just labeled, fun. Now, I remember from the book, uh, that fun is fun because you figured out how to actually make money in a sustainable way, and what a tremendous release that must be. Yeah, it's it's fun because it's not early struggle anymore. <laughs> you know, early struggle is a little like waking up every morning and you know finding a sharp edge and banging your head against it. It's just <laughs> tough. You got to find payroll. You got to meet expenses, and you don't know where the money's coming from. So now we've found this uh, profitable, sustainable market. We're in fun. If early struggle was all about finding it, fun is all about mining it. You know, we we've got this market. Doesn't matter what it is. Maybe it's for lime green post-it notes. Maybe it's for you know flavored <laughs> coffee. But we've found the market, and um, typically we move into fun, and we've got a tiny little market share. I mean, it's like nothing. It's just close to zero. So there's tons of low-hanging fruit, and we love it. I mean, we've found this market. We it's for the most evangelical stage of the organization's growth. Everybody's highly aligned, you know. There's, there, you know, very few job titles. There's the boss and everybody else, and we just get on with it. And and, and it's a wonderful time. Uh, we are saying yes to anything. We take on any job. No client gets turned around. We agree to ridiculous deadlines, and yet somehow we haul it over the line at the last minute. I, I like to say to folks that fun is when we're having uh, beer busts every Friday night. Uh, for two reasons. One is there's no HR department yet to tell us not to. Uh, but the second one is that we're reaching the weekend with a feeling of righteous exhaustion. We are beat. But boy, does it feel good. You know, how did we do that? How did we say yes to that stuff and deliver on it? And so it feels really good. And the inherent uh, issue that's going to crop up and, and causes a problem uh, pretty soon is the way that we're doing it. The way we're doing it is absolutely right for that stage in fun. In fact, it's the only way to deliver in fun. And it's uh, something I call flock ball. Now, if you've ever watched six-year-olds play soccer, you'll know what flock ball is. Right. It's just like every, all 22 players are in the middle of the field <laughs> with a ball somewhere underneath. There's a dust cloud, and wherever the ball goes, they go. And this includes the goalkeepers from both teams. And that's the way we deliver in fun. We just flock ball to success. We just put massive effort behind whatever needs to be done. We pivot to whatever you know the biggest issue is that we've got to you know deliver on uh, today, and then we do the next one, and then we do the next one, do the next indicated thing. Mm. And that's fantastic. And we so we grow, uh, we say yes to everything, and we over-invest um, in making our clients happy. Our clients love what we do. We grow and we get bigger, and we grow and we get bigger. And what's happening every single day is, without us typically knowing it, 
the business is just becoming a little more complex, a little more complex, a little more complex. Mm. More product lines, some service lines, additional people, you know, maybe a new location. Mm-hmm. Uh, we decide to go into another geographical region. Just hiring people. And at some point, flockballing doesn't work anymore. At some point, we actually begin to drop the ball. And at that stage, we're moving into the third stage of growth, which we call whitewater. Because white that's water. how it feels. You emerge from fun, which is just like we can do no wrong, and the boat begins to rock. And if you've ever been canoeing and you've hit whitewater, it's scary. And that's what whitewater is like. It's like you were going down this river, commenting on how beautiful this all is, and then suddenly this damn boat is rocking backwards and forwards, and you think you're about to get pitched over into the water and drown. And that's whitewater. Now, one thing about that analogy, and each of these is, I guess it's kind of its own metaphor. Um, and so whitewater, talking about that briefly less, just the naming of that or thinking about whitewater, I'm not sure you intended this with the language, but the implication is that external conditions are changing. Nothing, presumably, in the boat is changing, although I'm not sure you mean that. You can speak to that. But you know, when I think of being in a boat and being in whitewater, all of a sudden, things around me are different. Maybe I still think I'm in the same boat. I'm acting the same way. Is that true? Or, in it's, part, is it a self-inflicted wound here? It's going to become true. Uh, at the stage that we're at at the moment, though, the water is part of our internal environment. So think of the boat and the river being our business, All right. right? What's happened is from the little cocoon or the cockpit of running the business, wherever you are, um, as what I call the most senior executive. I mean, it might be a CEO or president, uh, whatever. But uh, from the cocoon of the most senior executive's world, it, the rest of the business is what's churning up. It's everything else. What's happened is that what we were in a pond. It was quiet and flat. <laughs> now our business, this river that we're in, the internal stuff we're doing has just become too complex for us to manage simply. And fun, you know, a board meeting is a ride up in the elevator, right? You get in there with one of your colleagues. If you and, even have a board. You don't even have a board, right? <laughs> so you get in with a colleague and by the time you get out, you know, you press the button for the 14th floor, by the time you get out, you've decided to open an office in Chicago. <laughs> Great. And by Tuesday, two weeks later, you know, you're looking at real estate for an office in Chicago. Uh, things are relatively simple. And uh, what a good friend of mine calls the golden gut, managing viscerally, just making judgments on the dime based on your experience and knowledge and, and intuition is actually, you know, perfect, not only perfectly good, it's the way you build a business and fun. What happens in Whitewater is that the complexity of the business overrides your ability to make high-quality decisions based solely on your gut, and, and you can't do it, increasingly can't do it on your own. You need other people to be around you. That's a mindset change that's very hard. Uh, and Whitewater is really a point of inflection. It's a crucial point at which founder owners in particular uh, need uh, to make a specific decision, which they rarely do. And the specific decision is, do I want to press forward through this white water to get to the capstone, the top of our arc, which we call predictable success, which is essentially the ability to scale, not grow, but scale. And we'll talk about that later. Do I want to scale my business? Or 
did I really love fun and do I just want to go back and stay in fun? Which is a valid decision. Entirely but, valid. But you're pointing out that not everybody even frames up the question. Correct. What happens is you just get stuck in whitewater and it feels horrible. You think this wonderful business that I built is dying. Why is this the case whenever we were just, you know, we couldn't, everything we touched turned to gold until six months ago, a year ago. This is horrible. And you try to deal with the issue without realizing, and why would you, that you're in a systemic pattern and that dealing with the place you're currently at involves deciding what direction you want to go in. You want to just go back and be in fun, in which case just stop growing, you know, uh, go back to, to the size you were, accept that there's going to be a cap. You might put some small percentage growth year on year in, uh, but essentially you're going to polish the apple, uh, you know, squeeze some more profit out and you're going to stay a niche boutique, small, maybe family business. Or do you want to scale? In which case you have a big, big, mindset change ahead. Because in the words of our friend Marshall Goldsmith, what got you here won't get you there. And all of the stuff that we did in fun that was right and that was the right thing to do will not get us to predictable success. So, one of my aims having you on this week for our listeners, our Rule Breaker Investing podcast, listeners who are at many different types of organizations, for-profit and not-for-profit. Some of us are retired and can look back on our years. Some of us are in civic duty of some sort. But all of us who are taking a paycheck from somebody is we're in organizations and and one of my big goals Les, is for you to help give consciousness to each of us wherever we are and ask what stage of Les McEwen's predictable success framework what stage is my organization in and and that's going to be a big focus of the second part of our interview talking about that but before we move into predictable success i have an ad read Yep, that's right. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Casper. Now, Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Casper's mattresses are designed by humans for humans. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Casper's breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature through the night. Now, a bunch of fools here in Full HQ have Casper mattresses and love them. Considering we spend one-third of our collective lives on a mattress, it's so important to truly sleep on a mattress before committing, and that's why Casper gives you 100 nights to try it out. So, get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com fool and using promo code FOOL at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. That's $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com fool and using promo code fool at checkout. Thank you, Casper. Now, Les, before we go to the capstone of the arch, again, we've stacked our blocks. We started with early struggle, and then on top of that, we put fun, and then on top of that, we got to whitewater, and things began listing a little bit to the right. And and as it turns out, we can actually capture it with a capstone and capstone with predictable success, the name of your book, the centrality of your framework. But before we get there, um, creation stories that people tell that we tell ourselves when this company first started, which presumably come from the early struggle and the fun. Um, but I'm partly thinking about people in Whitewater to recognize, are we in Whitewater? So, this is my question before we hit predictable success. I remember one of the things you point out in the book is that we're probably in Whitewater if we still think of that job as, I'll just go with, Marjorie's job. 
So it might be what we would call chief marketing officer, but often you have the big personalities, the players who just from the beginning have done marketing, and so that's just not marketing, it's Marjorie. And so the complexity that starts to come in is when it's less about the big players that have always been there and more about scaling and organizational needs. Absolutely right. And that's one of the underlying issues in making the decision of what you want to do if you want to be in fun. You're likely, part of the reason you're likely thinking that is, I loved it that way. I loved it when it was all about Marjorie. I don't want to think about a chief marketing officer. Marjorie may be what is in essence our chief marketing officer, but mm-hmm. but I just want, it's, it's all about the individuals, about the people, and I want to stick like that. Um, one of the key things that we work with when, we, when we're helping clients get out of uh, whitewater into predictable success is a concept that we call moving from heads to hats. That you've got to move from the heads. That's not to say that we're just you know throwing people overboard or getting rid of them, but the <laughs> mindset has got to be what if we want to scale this business? What does the business need from this role? Not what does this person bring? Mm-hmm. Now hopefully there's a match there, but often there isn't, and so we need to help upskill people, coach people, maybe redirect them, maybe put them in another area. Sometimes we've got to hire whole new people in, but this is part of the mindset change. That if we're going to get out of whitewater and and move into scaling, it's all about putting systems and processes in to manage that complexity that was kicking our bust, but to do one specific thing. We're not putting systems and processes in just for the sake of it. Sure, it's going to help us manage complexity, but it's to allow us to do one thing, which is to make high quality team-based decisions. Very boring, but that's what it's all about. The way you run a complex business, as you know, because you got one out there, is that you have people making high-quality team-based decisions. In fun, it's mostly about unilateral single people doing the diving catch, the heroic decision making, you know, asking forgiveness, <laughs> not permission. I just decided I was going to do it and we did it. And it was great. And that's fantastic. That's what you do in fun. And just like when you make a diving catch, people remember your name. It's it's a lot about the they person. Remember your name. The person Correct. who got it done. And not it, about the team. And in essence, what we're doing in fun uh, is something that is fun at the time and should be done. We shouldn't try to not do it. We've got to realize the limitations of it is we build the myths and legends of the business. And so what happens is when we hit problems, of course what people do is they go back to think about, retell the myths and legends. And what are the myths and legends all about? People, heroic events. I mean, think of the myths and legends we read in other, every other part of the world. It's mm-hmm. about you know the Odyssey. It's about Homer. It's about specific people and things they did. Wonderful, but not scalable. It's not scalable. It's not to say that we won't do those things again. We will. So, it makes for great stories, but we shouldn't be seduced by our stories if we want to scale. Correct. And some people do try to scale by saying, okay, I've just got to go get 300 superheroes. Well, you know, good luck with that. It's like herding cats. Uh, that's why you know a lot of uh, uh, legal firms, a lot of talent agencies fall apart because they're essentially driven by celebrity individuals who are perfect for fun, but you can't build scalability on that. Mm. So. I'm going to be tempted to want to go too deep right now on predictable success, and then on the following stage as we start going down the other side of the arch. But I want you to help keep me in line here, and let's move still fairly quickly through the framework because, again, the second part of our conversation, I want to go back to these two areas that are on either side of predictable success, where a lot of us might see our organization either in whitewater, as you've already talked about, or just past predictable success. Spoiler alert is the treadmill. And so, we're going to concentrate the latter part of our conversation on how to get back up to predictable success if we're in either of those situations. So, so Les, really briefly, 
What is predictable success? What does it feel like? Yeah, we'll come. I'm sure we'll come back into it. So let's do that really quickly. Essentially, what we're doing is we're bringing systems and processes to bear to manage the complexity um, that has that had started to threaten us in Whitewater. But we're doing it to just the right extent. We're we're bringing in enough systems and processes to allow that to happen and to coexist with creativity, entrepreneurial spirit, risk taking, uh, all of the things that helped us grow. We're made out- us what we were. Correct. But there is a co-equality. We're building the uh, innovation on top of systemic enterprise structure, as opposed to just maverick ourselves from one um, extreme to the other. And so predictable success is that balance of systems and processes on the one hand, creativity and innovation on the other. And what happens is, and essentially, uh, we do, as organizationally, what we all do, which is if something was good, systems and processes. We brought them in. It was complicated, difficult, painful, but we did it, and it did a great thing. It allowed us to scale. Look at this now. We are a big, big company. We've done really well. So if systems and processes are good, let's have some more. And what happens is we begin usually to overemphasize the need for systems and processes. And that's what pushes us into the first of the decline stages. So we've gone up the arc, we've hit the capstone, and now we begin to edge into the first decline stages. you signaled it's called treadmill, and I call it that because that's what it sort of feels like. It doesn't feel like a death rattle. It doesn't feel like, you know, everything dying. It's just got a little, you know, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. I have to like keep being, filling out more forms more for some forms. reason. It's all about compliance. You know, it's... Uh, what my, exactly is your job title? And how to, what yeah. group are you part of? Yeah, and, yeah. It's very limiting. Measure six times to cut once. Um, it just we're overemphasizing systems and processes. And we're losing sight of what the checklist is there to deliver on. Uh, our focus typically begins to drift away from pleasing the customer or client externally to, you know, pleasing the systems guru internally. Uh, we begin to worry more about whether we're using, you know, the precise Pantone color for our logo than whether our marketing materials are world class. You know, we're investing more in making sure our website is HTML5 compliant, if that's, that's still a thing, than making <laughs> sure it's a wonderful experience. You know, a, a potential new customer has to fill in 13 fields in an online form when all we need is their phone number or their email address. And so that's treadmill, and it's recoverable. You can recover from that. And if there is uh, in the business what we call a strong visionary style, the visionaries in the business, which we might get to talk about a little later, they'll put their hand up and, and they'll say, this is crazy, we need to reverse this, let's just ease up in these systems and processes. And we can spring back or, or, or steer back into predictable success. However, if we stay in treadmill for too long, what happens is we begin to become numb to this Overcompliance, and we're about to fall down another block. So we've Correct. gone from pre- predictable success, and unfortunately, we've dropped down to treadmill. We'd like to get back, and we can, and, and we that's can. always an optimistic, important point. But we didn't make the right decisions. We didn't know the framework. We made some mistakes, and now we've dropped and from an, treadmill into what? Uh, into something that we call the big rut. Now, what triggers that technically is that if we stay in treadmill for too long, remember those visionaries we talked about a few times? Ultimately, they're going to leave. Visionaries can't abide working in treadmill. It drives them crazy because there's no sandbox for them to actually use their visionary skills. They're being asked to comply all the time. And as that visionary style uh, leaves the organization, so it becomes a self-amplifying treadmill, and it just becomes more and more like that. And decision-making becomes grindingly slow. And we fall into the stage called the big rut. And the difference between the big rut and treadmill, there is only one difference. In the big rut, 
we have lost the ability to self-diagnose. In treadmill, we were overprocessed, but somebody was kicking against the pricks. In tread and the big rut, we're overprocessed, and we like it like this. This is pretty much the way we want it to be. <laughs> Customers are a pain in the neck. Everything is is scheduled within an inch of its life. I mean, just go down to the DMV and watch the DMV in action. And I don't mean to insult our, our fine public servants, but most DMVs are a great example of the big rut. You know, it's just take a number, sit there for an hour and a half. We'll call you up, and if your forms aren't filled in perfectly, we send you back to the end of the queue. And hey, that's the way things have always been done around here. Correct, and that's the way it's going to continue to be done. Now, because of the inability to self-diagnose, this is the important thing. We're not yet in the final stage, right? We're in the penultimate stage. But if you fall from treadmill to the big rut, you are going to go to the final stage. It, you cannot recover from the big rut. It's impossible. Mm. Now, again, this is there's a lot of optimism in this message. We're going to get back to that. <laughs> but this is now dark times. It We're is, now, it is. For the Star Wars original trilogy, it's now the Empire striking back really hard as we Correct. talk about the inevitability of dropping from the big rut to what is the final seventh stage? Death rattle. And I call it death rattle because there are some artificial signs of life. Something is going on. Um, uh, think of Kodak a couple of years ago. It's been through all of these cycles. And there was a, a little period of time when something was happening with Kodak. But what was it that was happening? It was being sold off for patent value. That's essentially what was happening. That was, that's its death rattle time. It, it was gone. Um, in death rattle, you know, the business might get uh, piecemealed out. It might get uh, bought for its asset value. It might be bought for its client book, maybe just for its brand names. But whatever happens, it's over. The business is not going to ever be what it was before. So the key takeaway is the two uh, stages in which you want to make very specific decisions about what direction you're going to, you want to go in is whitewater, when either direction is entirely valid, or treadmill, where, let's be honest, you really only want to go one direction, which you is to recover back, back yes. to predictable systems. All right, and that triggers where we're headed for the rest of our time together, Les. We're going to go over, first, organizations in Whitewater. What are some of Les McEwen's bits of advice to senior people? Because that's going to be critical, I think. We need to make sure that the people at the top believe this and recognize this. What are some of the things they need to emphasize to break through from Whitewater into predictable success? And then we're going to go to organizations that are in Treadmill. And what do they need to do? What are a few prescriptive things they can do to bring themselves back to predictable success? I'd like to thank Harry's for supporting our podcast. Harry's is all about a great shave at a fair price. A good shave comes down to good blades. Because Harry's owns the factory, they're able to deliver amazing quality blades for just $2 a blade, compared to the $4 or more you're going to pay at the drugstore. All products are backed by a 100% quality guarantee. Harry's is so confident you're going to love their blades. They'll give you their trial shave set for free when you sign up today at harrys.com. You're just going to pay for shipping. Now, I'm a Harry's customer myself, and that's how I got started. I just took the freebie, and I liked it enough that I'm still, a few years later, a Harry's customer. You can claim your free trial offer from Harry's today. A $13 value for free when you sign up. You just cover the shipping. Your free trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. To get your free trial set, go to harrys.com fool right now. That's harrys.com fool. 
All right, now back with Les McEwen, author of Predictable Success. And Les, we were talking about Whitewater, and we're talking about, let's say I'm listening to this interview, I'm engaged, I hear you, and I feel like I'm living Whitewater. I might be my own entrepreneur, small or large business. I might be working with an entrepreneur. I might be in an organization where I don't get to talk to the entrepreneur. But Les, I know in your professional life, you are a consultant. As you mentioned earlier, you've worked with some wonderful organizations. What is some of the advice that you would give us who are in Whitewater? How can we get through? A great question. I think that one of the things that I want to bring back into the picture is something that you referred to earlier on is that uh, for our listeners, not just to be thinking about this in terms of your overall organization that you work in, because it will certainly apply to the, that organization, but if you recall, these stages work with any group of two or more people who are trying to achieve common goals. So it's good to think about it in terms of not just your organization, but what about your division, your department, your project? your team that you work with. Because uh, after any sort of reasonable period of growth, certainly once you've got past having 15, 20 employees, actually where the organization is on the life cycle is the weighted average of where the underlying divisions, departments, projects, groups, and teams are. So you can have one project that's down an early struggle. We just got started. We're just Mm. trying to make our way out of here. Internal startup. Yeah. Uh, you can have another group that's deep in treadmill, uh, and, and often with old organizations, that's precisely the situation. Most of the business is in treadmill, and there are some satellite parts that are elsewhere. So that's the first thing: distinguish where you are from the organization as a whole. Mm, okay. Secondly, in Whitewater and with uh, treadmill, you know, in the book in Predictable Success, I do detail a, a series of very mechanical things that you have to do. You got to look at your org chart, build some skills that I call lateral management, so forth, and those are pretty mechanical. But the key thing I think you've got to look at is what's happening in the four inches between the ears of the key people who are running your department, project, group, team, or organization. Uh, And I want to be specific about that. If you've hit whitewater, there are typically two types of people who are pushing the agenda, the growth of the business. Those are, first of all, the visionary that we've talked about before. That's somebody who may well have been the original founder owner, has the, has the idea for the business, has the vision for the business, uh, works at 30,000 feet, uh, you know, thinks in big terms, always wants to move the needle uh, in big ways. Steve Jobs. Classic visionary. And the other one is what we call the operator. That's somebody that the visionary seeks out subliminally often, um, sometimes explicitly, to actually do the hard work of making stuff happen. Because visionaries like to start things, but they get sort of irritated that they have to you know, needle out all of the details. So they'll go find somebody who actually goes through brick walls to make it happen. Steve Wozniak, good example with Steve Jobs. Um, uh, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer is another uh, good example of that. Um, an operator is a pretty ruthless finisher. So we've got our visionary starter comes up with the idea, and then a ruthless operator who would sell both grandparents multiple times a day just to get done whatever <laughs> needs to be done. And it's not going to be pretty, right? It's, still, it's going to get done, but don't watch. You won't like it. That's how you get out of early struggle, and that's how you build fun. And working with those people is great fun. Here's the main issue in getting out of whitewater and into predictable success. To scale, because that's what we're trying to do here. If we want to go there, if we want to get to predictable success, we're creating a scaled organization that can scale from there. Correct. And if you do want to 
scale. If you choose not to go back to fun, you want to go back to fun, Those that combination is perfect. Just keep it that way. Don't mess with that. If you want to scale, there are two inherent, not just barriers, but things that will fundamentally block your ability to scale that come with each of those styles. The first one is with the visionary is this sense of total ownership. The business is mine. I am the business. The business is me and I am the business. I own this business. Therefore, what? Therefore, I can come in on Monday morning and we can do whatever the heck I decide. I was at a conference. They told me that websites colored orange make more people buy. <laughs> We're changing our website. It's going to be orange, right? Um, and that's what the visionary mindset is. Uh, you know, if I decide it, we are going to do it. And that becomes in, in fun that's very necessary, that, that golden gut, that visceral thing, that's necessary to grow the business. Now that we're complex, it's probably just wrong. That's point one. Point two is it produces a whiplash effect when you're trying to scale that distracts everybody from the focus that's necessary. So we end up flockballing on the orange website and then, you know, the visionary founder meets somebody and has a great dinner with them and comes back and says, okay, we, you know, we have to have casual Friday, right? I mean, we've just got to have it. So let's have it. And, it's, you know, it sounds like a silly little thing, but, you know, suddenly you've lost three weeks momentum because we had to work at the policy and blah, 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 blah. Mm. So that sense of ownership. And I tell people if they want to get to predictable success, this might sound really silly. I tell them, you've got to stop using the word founder. Just stop using it. Get rid of it. It's a barrier. Because when you talk about yourself as the founder, you're basically saying, end of discussion. You're basically saying, I am God. It's like bringing God into the, you know, yeah, I say God told me to do it. You know, sometimes I refer to myself as a co-founder of the Molly Fool, but no longer. It's going to change from here on. <laughs> I, I, I'm also chief rule breaker. That's all I am now. No, that's a good thing. I'm no longer a co-founder. That's going to help I love with, it. That's going to help with treadmill a lot. <laughs> and the second thing is that with the operator, the barrier to growth there is that any operator worth their salt build their sense of self-identity on being the person that does the diving catch. They build their concept mm. of value on being the person who made it happen. They're the athlete out there on the field. Correct. And, and that and, can be a problem, I guess, to scale. It, of course it's a problem to scale because what happens is when they have to start working in much more of a team-based environment, that becomes problematic. Operators are terrible delegators. They don't want to delegate because they know they can do it faster, cheaper, better themselves. They just want to go through that brick wall. They don't want to bring an architect in uh, who's going to show them how to take the wall down and b build a better one. They're just going to charge right through the damn wall. Well, that's not scalable. It's just not scalable. You end up with walls with a lot of holes in them, and that's not what we're looking to do. And so that shifting that operator mindset away from uh, thinking, I'm it. I'm the. You remember the heads to hats things? Mm -hmm. We have big dog operators who have built a lot of autonomy and freedom during the fun stage because they worked. I mean, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not down on these people. They worked their. Am I allowed to say asses off? In the yes, podcast? on this podcast. Yes, this is the rule breaker investing <laughs> podcast. Now, I will say that on Apple iTunes, we're given clean lyrics. There's actually a badge. I won't ruin that then. I, all right, I'll all just right, stick good. with them. Their tails off. <laughs> um, but what is the case for most big dog operators is a very simple fact. They need to be and should be always working for organizations in fun. That's where they get satisfaction. And I've never, ever seen a business get through Whitewater into predictable success without sitting down with some of the big dog operators and saying, look, I love you. We've, we've built this thing together. You want to go where we're going? I'm going to help you find somewhere else. Mm. That's a horrible thing to have to say, but it's just true. So those two mental shifts, 
in the visionary, away from, hey, it's mine, we get to do anything I want, and I got a great idea for next week, <laughs> uh, to becoming a steward, becoming somebody who says the business has at least a veto over me, at the very least. Mm. And the operator moving away, which is much harder to do than the visionary. The visionary can make that shift much easier than the operator can. The operator moving away from needing to be the person, the head, not the hat, the person who does the diving catch every time. Mm. Those are the two most difficult things in getting out of white water. So, if you, having just heard Les McEwen describe, if you feel like you might be in whitewater. There's some really good advice, and Les, we don't have time for this, but in the book, you do outline actually six concepts, features, or strategies, and I'll just list them really quickly. We're not going to talk about them, but do you have an org chart? That could be helpful. Um, what about lateral management, something you talk about in the book? Alignment, that sounds awfully good if you actually want to scale. Number four was cross-functional teams. Number five, a sense of empowerment, and finally, six, ownership and self-accountability, which that'll be my final question when we talk about this later. But those are six prescriptions from you. All right, now we're going to shift. We've just left predictable success the other direction. We're on a treadmill. Les McEwen, consultant, author, fellow Capital F fool, if we're on treadmill, what do we need to do? We need to reverse the echo chamber that's causing the treadmill impact. And I want to go back to our styles for this, because it's a very important element. Growing, uh, going through the growth stages, we've got our visionaries and our operators, we've talked about those. Those are not only all you need, those are not only what you have during growth stage, they're all you need. Uh, that's, those are the key building blocks of, of uh, good growth. To get into scalability, we've already identified we need to, in order to get into predictable success, put systems and processes in place. That means that for the first time in the organization, we start to bring in at a senior level a third style simply called the processor. That's somebody who will put those systems and processes in place. What does that look like? It might be somebody in HR, might be somebody in IT. Legal. Legal, just, you know, checking the darn documents that, you know, we were signing off on and getting ourselves in all sorts of trouble about. Uh, could be just quality control, warehouse management, wherever we were dropping the ball in, in Whitewater. We need to bring processors in who will bring process to bear and will make sure that we can conquer the chaos that was being caused by complexity. And so now we've got three styles. We've got the visionary, the operator, the processor. What happens is that those three styles, which are all natural styles, we all of us show up typically with one primary style and usually a secondary style. So I'm primarily a visionary, secondarily a processor. That's a common consultant um, uh, profile. Um, what has happened whenever we get into predictable success and find ourselves moving towards a treadmill is that the visionary operator and processor styles, naturally left to their own devices, will get into conflict. And the conflict is a, a, a binary one. It's actually visionary versus processor. That's what mm. the conflict is. Why? The operator is just figuring out what he or she needs to do and getting that done, but you can't figure out who sh you should listen to. Correct. And any operator worth their salt doesn't want to be in darn meetings, doesn't want to sit and have the debate. The operator is just saying, hey, hey, bye, I have a job to do. Call me when you're, you two are finished and tell me what you want. And so it becomes a battle between, and it may be personified, it may just be, in essence, the management team battling between the visionary style, which is move the needle, big stuff, high risk, do it fast, and the processor, hold on, more analysis, more data, take our time, slow this down, less risk. And what happens in, when we're moving into treadmill is the processor role is actually winning the argument more and more and more. 
And in treadmill, you know, you mentioned the the uh, six little items that we talked about in Whitewater. Mm. There are six of them in uh, treadmill as well. And the very first one is hiring. And why I, um, when I'm working with my clients, if they're in treadmill, the reason I work with them uh, in their hiring function first is because in treadmill, what happens is hiring becomes an amplifier. We hire processors. We for almost every job, we bring people in who are uh, you know uh, tech savvy, process savvy, system savvy, so they can plug and play and fit with our systems. We don't look enough for entrepreneurship, for innovation, for all the visionary side of things. So we've got to work with the processor role, not to squelch it, to get it co-equal. What we need is a co-equality visionary operator process, co-equal. The high-quality team-based decisions that we're talking about Mm -hmm. come from having an equal voice of the visionary, the operator, the processor, not one dominating the other. So to get out of um, treadmill, we need to equalize the processor role. We need to take its voice down so that it's co-equal with... Are you implying, by the way, Les, that processors will tend to hire more processors? Is that going to... breed like rabbits. I see. You put two processors in a room and leave them for nine months, you come back, there's seven of them there. (laughs) And the reason... I'm a processor, I'm allowed to say this stuff. The reason is a logical one and an understandable one. What are those two processors doing? They're building systems and processes, and when they build one uh, and they want to go on and build another one, who do they hire to manage the one that they just built? Another processor. They're going to put a visionary or an operator in charge. They're going to hire another processor. So, yes, they do... Become rampant if you're not careful, and that's a good sign that an organization is in treadmill. Is when you realize that hey, we just keep hiring these people who are highly compliant. So we mm-hmm. want to fix that. Here's the problem: it doesn't. Uh, it just doing that doesn't fix the problem in the medium or long term, mm-hmm. because left on their own, the visionary operator and processor will always end up in corners arguing their piece, because their worldviews are fundamentally different. Here was the magic final. Um, part of the puzzle that took me 25 years to discover. Um, I moved over here from uh, Ireland uh, just about 20 years ago. And the reason I did it, there were personal reasons, but the business reason I did it was because I knew from my understanding of the predictable success model that there were many organizations who got into predictable success and stayed there in the medium and long term, but I hadn't seen any of those in action. I'd only seen businesses that ticked into predictable success and then fell out again and either into whitewater or treadmill. And so I'd go help a business in treadmill, get it back into predictable success, you know, bring the processor voice back to co-equality. And six months later, they'd be back in the same mm. place again. When I went and looked at some of the great organizations that I got to observe who, who back then were in predictable success and had been for quite some time, uh, organizations like Microsoft, T-Mobile, uh, Harvard University, U.S. Army, Sun Microsystems, I found something that really took me back, which was that there was a fourth style. It's a style that I've come to call the synergist style. And it only emerges in its full flush in predictable success, first point. Second point is it's a learned style. A synergist is somebody who has learned that they have to get results through working with teams, not doing it all on their own. And what a synergist is, that learned style, is essentially the glue that holds the visionary operator processor together and in balance. Mm. It's the voice on the team that says, no, no, wait a minute, you're not hearing that right. He's not saying delay this for another six months. He's saying, let's actually read this data and see what it says rather than depending on anecdote. 
right? The synergist is the person who says, hey, Mr. Visionary, love that you're just back from a two-week vacation and you've got a, you know, a, a notepad full of squirrels that we could chase down. But you know what? What we started to do this quarter, we have to finish that first. Let's do that. So the synergist role, there's a fourth vital role, is the role that gets an organization into predictable success permanently. It keeps the balance, in the medium or long term, keeps the balance right. Absent a synergist, you're either going to fall back into whitewater again or forward into treadmill. So the synergist, which by the way is a follow-up book from Les McEwen. So if you enjoy predictable success as I did, you might do what I did and go ahead and read the synergist as well. Unless these are people who are typically egoless. They often don't have a lot of ideas. They're basically a great team player. They listen very well and they can coordinate, make stuff happen, but not by being the operator, but really by being the conductor. Correct. And for that reason, there's no place for them in any other stage, really, than in predictable success and early treadmill. You hire a synergist uh, when you're in fun, they're going to leave not long after because there's nothing for them to synergize. There's no internal conflict or very little. The visionary and operator get on so well together. It's only whenever you move into predictable success that they really have a role at senior level. And yes, they are typically people who you don't notice individually that much. They're typically wallflowers. And not always, but usually. What happens is when you get into a team environment, that's when their utility becomes really obvious. Now, it's not because they're necessarily overbearing or intrusive. I like to think of a good synergist. By the way, you can have Great visionaries and awful visionaries, you know, great operators, awful operators. Right, just because somebody is something, something doesn't, doesn't mean they're, they're actually good. Correct. And you can have good synergists <laughs> and pretty crappy synergists. But <laughs> a good synergist is really like a good referee or, or umpire in a sports event. The better they are, the less you see them. They're just doing the job. They're making the event go. And when mm-hmm. they need to put something back on track, they'll put it back on track. If they need to throw a flag, they'll throw a flag. But a, a good synergist is somebody who really comes into their own in a team environment. Two final questions for you, Les. Thank you, first of all, for all the insights. I know I'm thanking you on behalf of thousands of people who've enjoyed your insights, and I I encourage them, if they feel motivated, to pick up a copy of Predictable Success. Um, One quote that I wrote down and have used, um, introducing new employees to The Fool when I've had breakfasts or lunches over the years here at The Motley Fool, is just this simple quote from you. We've never talked about this before, so you don't know what I'm about to say, but this is it. It's Quote, the single most powerful characteristic of the predictable success organization, the single most powerful characteristic, is the existence of a culture of self-accountability. I know what I say when I talk to employees, but I don't care what I say right now. <laughs> Les, how did you conceive of that? Why did that come from you? Why did you say that? Well, like all of the model, is less a question of uh, conceiving it, more a question of recognizing it, seeing it, uh, rather than uh, inventing it and putting a terminology around it. Actually, it came out of, uh, interestingly, my years as a CPA, which was my first job, um, technically a, a chartered accountant, which is the UK equivalent. I spent a lot of time as an auditor. And one of the things that happens as an auditor is you go to an organization, a company, a client of mine was for years was Michelin. I was with Pricewaterhouse, latterly PricewaterhouseCoopers, and Michelin were a client of mine. You'd go there, you'd be there for three months auditing the books, and then you'd move on to another company, and you'd spend two or three months there. It was fascinating getting to see everything. The same one thing happened every time. You'd go there, you'd be introduced to, uh, you know, typically somebody in the uh, management team uh, who would be managing you, either the CEO or the CFO. 
And they'd want to take you on a little tour of the business. You know, proud of the business. They want to show you around. And one of the things that I noticed they would do is they would take you to wherever that there was a sense of accountability and ownership. You maybe want to put pride in there. People who really own their jobs. Mm. And that was great. And I'd you know, be taken into a room, maybe it's the packing department or the legal department, just somewhere where everybody was gung-ho and strong sense of ownership. But I was going to be there for three months, and my job as an auditor meant I had to tramp all around <laughs> all of the organization. And I began to work out very quickly that this sense of ownership and accountability could be very thin. Maybe that was it. And yet, in other organizations, any almost anywhere I went, they had the same mindset. There was this deep, deep sense of accountability and ownership. And there was just this massive correlation. It was 100%. The organizations with really deep, accountability and ownership were successful. And the ones that had this wafer thin, sometimes they had nowhere to take me because there was no sense of ownership. They were either only successful on past history and were going to fall off the cliff eventually mm. and would, or had already reached the peak and were in treadmill or the big red. And so it was a simple correlation. And, and as I drew the model up and, and began to connect things, um, there's a great scene in A Beautiful Mind, a great movie uh, about the Nobel Prize winner. Uh, where he's looking, staring at a wall, and there's just all sorts of bits of paper and doodles and bits of string. And the camera takes over the point of view of his eyes, and his eyes begin to dart. And then you see him linking something, linking something, linking something. Hmm. And I'm not uh, <laughs> I'm not taking, you know, Nobel Prize uh, abilities onto myself. But at the point when the, the, the maybe two-year period, 2006 to 2008 when the predictable success model really began to come together, the, the very final thing was to see that at the kernel of it is this sense of accountability and ownership. And also that it's the one part of all of it that you cannot manufacture. You mm. can't make it happen. It arises as a result of doing all of the other things. It's always been paired for me with the line, I can't, I'm not sure who I'm quoting, but we can all look it up later. Character is what you do when no one else is looking. Right. Les, before you and I started our conversation off the air, you just mentioned a transition in your own life last year where having had a business and uh, with fellow consultants, rather than try to punch through to predictable success, you modeled some of the behavior you've talked about in your books. What was the move that you made very briefly? Well, I tell people all the time, as I've mentioned today, that if you find yourself in whitewater, the first thing that you've got to do is decide which direction you want to go in. And I find myself very much in whitewater last year for the 43rd time, uh, 42 <laughs> businesses before this is the 43rd. And I made a conscious decision that I, I don't want to build a McKinsey. I don't want to build you know, a, a, a Bain & Company uh, consulting firm. I've, done, I've actually done that before. I, I, I sold a, a, a multi-hundred people consulting for many years ago. Mm. I want to be in fun, because that frees me up to help other people build their you businesses. You want to be in fun. So, I, I reconstructed my business, and uh, you know it's back to what I was for 15 years, which is I'm a con sole consultant. I consult and coach executives. Uh, I have one employee who's my executive assistant, and that's it, and that's, that's how I like it to be. And that's what you love, because you get to work directly with businesses and not have to manage your own. Correct. And I can totally relate to that. Um, so, Les, let me ask you, if, if I'm somebody who's really enjoyed our conversation, how might I reach out to you? 
Just go to predictablesuccess.com, all one word, predictablesuccess.com. If you hit the contact us button there, uh, uh, there's all the usual uh, ways to get in touch with me. And the nice thing is, because I'm a small business in fun, it all comes right through to me. Isn't that nice? There aren't a bunch of teammates or forms that we all have to fill out or any Correct. kind of barrier. All right. Well, Les, thank you very much for your time. Look forward to let's Let's have you back sometime, maybe some months or a year hence, if things have changed. Uh, let's pick up the conversation, especially, I think, when I hear some real positive props at this week's mailbag. And if you find yourself moved by anything Les said to share a story of yours, maybe something that totally accords with what Les said, or some aspect that challenges something that you heard, we'd love to hear from you. And speaking of mailbag, that's where we're headed next week. So remember, rbi at fool.com is how to reach out to us. You can also drop us a line on Twitter at RBI Podcast. I will mention that we're taping next week a day early. So your deadline would be, let's say, Sunday night. If you want to try to get on our next mailbag, make sure you correspond with us by then. In the meantime, thank you, Les. Thank you. It's been an absolute delight. And fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com. <laughs>